listeners, and welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we'll be learning from some of the world's most interesting people about how you can turn your dreams for a better world into real and measurable change. I am really excited today because we have an extra special guest on the show. If there was ever someone that you should have heard of but haven't, it's Archon Fung and his work in a field called Disclosure or Transparency. He's a professor at Harvard University and the author of a book called Full Disclosure. And this fascinating field is all about how making the numbers and data about the issues we care about easily and publicly available can cause striking and powerful social change. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Archon. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Why is the public disclosure of data so important? Disclosure of data is very important because we depend on data and information to make all sorts of important choices in our lives, from where to send our children, which neighborhoods to live in, what kinds of food to buy and eat, what kind of products to choose to buy if we get sick, what doctor to go to, or where to send a loved one to get medical care. And we can make these decisions well or poorly, and a lot of those decisions depend on the quality of data and information that's available to us. And the type of people who are going to be listening are people who maybe work in government or they work in not-for-profits or they're social change entrepreneurs who are, are trying to make change happen. I mean, what are the kind of problems that happen when you're actually trying to change the world and there is no disclosure, there's no public data and there's no regulation around making information public? What goes wrong? One of the things that goes wrong for social change agents is that their job becomes a lot harder because it's hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys. So say you're working in pollution prevention or an environmental area and you want to reward companies that are good environmental stewards and citizens and maybe punish companies either by signaling them out and drawing attention to them or if you're a consumer deciding to buy somebody else's products, it might be helpful to have some information to be able to differentiate between companies that are doing a good job vis-a-vis the environment or society or their workers and employees versus companies that are doing a bad job. And the most exciting example that's come out of your work, or from what I could see, was the toxic release index from the EPA. Can you talk a bit more about how that started and what results that got? Yeah, the toxics release inventory is an interesting case. It became a law and regulation in the wake of, I don't know if you or your listeners remember, there was a a big disaster of a union carbide plant in India near a town called Bhopal, and it released a large amount of gas, methyl isocyanate. A lot of people all around the world got concerned about pollution and toxics in the environment. In the wake of that, a little bit later, there was a law in the United States that was passed that created the toxic release inventory. And what that law does is it requires all companies that are running facilities above a certain size to report to the government the amount of toxins that they're releasing into the environment, either into the air or into the ground or shipping off site. There's a list of several hundred chemicals that are classified as toxins they have to report what they're releasing and what they're shipping. And anybody who lives in the United States can get on the internet on their web browser, type in their zip code, and a map will pop up with all of the facilities that are recorded in the toxic release inventory. And you can see in your neighborhood or in your town or city or county who's releasing what. 
over the many decades in which it's operated, it's had a, many, many effects. And one of the kind of surprising, to me anyway, effects is that companies and facilities managers have really paid attention to the list and tried to clean up their act. I think if you're running a facility, it's a bad mark if you're revealed as a bad actor on that list by being you know, one of the top 10 polluters in the county or state or in a particular zip code or whatever it is. And the numbers were huge. It decreased toxic chemical use by about 45% in a pretty short period of time. Is that true? I think there's a lot going on in that period. You know, many things are happening in addition to the toxics release inventory. But the toxics release inventory, I think, did create a lot of incentives for many, many people to change their behavior. It was also used by environmental groups and by journalists and lots of other people to identify companies that were releasing a lot of toxins into the environment. It creates a dynamic that some people call a kind of race to the top or a race away from the bottom because you can begin to see and make visible what's happening, which was invisible before the database was created. What I'm really curious about is how much of the change do you think comes from external pressures of the data, for example, consumer demand or government or not-for-profits putting kind of pressure on from once these numbers are made available, which kind of makes sense to people. Once you put numbers out there, obviously there'll be some sort of market pressure. But I'm curious also as to a different type of pressure that happens just psychologically internally. So for example, if there's no market pressure or no external pressure, does just the companies seeing the numbers themselves when their own employees see the ranks? Do you think that has a psychological effect even if there isn't a market pressure? Well, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's hard to tell It's very, very difficult to tell how to break up the different components of what the toxics release inventory is doing between external pressure versus internal desire of managers and companies to to kind of do the right thing. I will say that it has to be both and it has to be a mixed story, I think, because if consumers and people in the public and journalists and environmental activists really didn't care, then there's probably no reason that a factory manager should care either. I mean, if nobody cares, then it's just numbers on a sheet that have no particular meaning. Why should you manage to it if your performance on that criterion isn't valued by anybody, right? So it's got to be both. Now, I will say that I think people have different understandings of what actually happened. But my own understanding is that a lot of the dynamic did depend on internal decision-making among people in these companies. And I expected to find actually quite a bit more external activism and campaigning on the part of environmental groups because I thought it was probably a pretty attractive source of data for these groups to identify who's polluting a lot and who's quite green and, and not polluting very much at all. And some environmental groups did use it, especially at the local level, but it got a lot less take up than I thought it might. My own interpretation is because many environmental groups aren't accustomed to using data in quite that way. In the United States, over this period, environmental groups are accustomed to fighting for tougher environmental regulations in Washington that environmental regulators would then enforce. And that doesn't require a lot of toxics release inventory data. You can kind of do that through lobbying and it requires other kinds of data. So if your organization and your habits and your skills and what you do 
is accustomed to advocating in one kind of way that is fighting for better regulation, then I think you're likely not to be attentive to an opportunity to use this data. And so I think that less the data were used less and less effectively than they might have been by environmental advocates. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've been doing a lot of outreach for some of my own concepts recently to people who work in not-for-profits and in government. And I've noticed a definite bias in the way of thinking that everything needs to be done through lobbying and through top-down legislation. And I've been coming from a different angle is, well, let's, you know, gather lots of data, let's make the data public, you know, let's make it easy for people to find. And just through making this, this data public and beautifully designed, I think we can come from this different angle. And I noticed it was an incredibly novel concept for them. And they were very much used to thinking in that type of way that you just described. Yeah. And I often think about the toxic release inventory alongside a very different transparency and disclosure regulation, which is not really about environment, but about the city. And this is a different transparency regulation called the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. This is a regulation that required banks to disclose to public authorities who would then disclose to the public who they were making loans to and who they were refusing to make loans to. And this is an anti-redlining regulation. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the term redlining, but it was an accusation for a long time that banks were operating in racially discriminatory ways by not giving home loans to low-income minority borrowers. And many, many banks denied this. Many, many other observers denied that it was happening. But then a regulation passed that created a lot of data to allow people to analyze who exactly was getting loans and who wasn't getting loans. And one result of this was that it turned out that people thought a fair amount of discrimination in home lending was occurring. And once these data came out, it enabled a lot of advocacy organizations in cities, in particular National People's Action, fought for this regulation in Chicago. And what they could then do is identify banks that were making loans in a non-discriminatory fair way and separate those out from banks that were discriminating and then target those banks and say, hey, you guys need to clean up your act. You need to make fair lending decisions. And then those advocacy groups are also able to advocate to regulators and say, hey, look, you need to regulate. Fair lending is an important part of our legal and regulatory structure. And so you need to enforce on these banks. In the home mortgage disclosure realm, there were many organizations who were accustomed to using the data. Indeed, they were the ones who demanded that government generate this data. Yeah, it's really interesting how the government can come in from both ends of the data. In your book, you talk a lot about looking at disclosure as one type of regulatory framework versus a more descriptive command and control type of legislation. So what that means, just for people, this means that the government just says, we're not going to tell you what to do. We're just going to make sure that you tell everybody the numbers and then we'll just be hands off and you do what you want. But what I've also seen happening with all these new data startups that are coming up, they're investigating more data of their own accord, not with the government telling them to do it at all. And then that new emerging data is then influencing what government does. The data starts to tell a story, like for example, with air pollution, with urban heat islands, something I've been working on, you can start to see a whole lot more granular information with the new startups that are working in this space. And then that influences policy. So you can kind of come from both ends once you start getting into the numbers, which I thought was a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, I think that some efforts in data allow you, in your allow people to get a better picture of what the world is like. And then that will 
say, okay, well, here's some problems that we didn't quite understand before, like where childhood asthma is occurring or some public health issue that we didn't really understand what the patterns are. And now we can tackle that more effectively, right? And so I think there's a, a whole lot of that happening and that's really important work. That's one way in which more effective generation and use of data can make the world a better place. Another way is to generate data that helps people do the right thing, more or less, or make the right decisions or leverage pressure. So, you, And this is kind of the more governmental use of data to achieve ends that it wants to achieve, like reducing pollution or increasing fair lending or whatever. As you were saying, in the kind of top-down way of government action and regulation, we think of the government is one entity and it's trying to find the bad guys and regulate them and stop them from doing bad things. And that's what regulation is. In the information domain, there's another set of actors out there and that's society. So now you have a three-actor game. You have government, you have some potentially bad actors, and then you have society. And then what transparency does it is it uses government power to generate data for society to put pressure on the bad actors, as they did in the banks. They did a little bit with a toxics release inventory, and there's all kinds of examples of that. That's kind of oftentimes for people in government, a little bit hard to wrap their minds around that what they're really trying to do when they generate information is provide society with information to help basically a regulatory purpose, like fair lending or less pollution or better public health outcome. Yet when you go to the Starbucks or I don't know what the regulations are in California, but a lot of states have and a lot of jurisdictions have regulations that require restaurants to put calorie levels or sugar levels on their menus, right? So what that's doing is the government requiring Starbucks or some other food purveyor to tell the consumers what kind of calories their food has. It does a couple of things, right? It enables the consumer to eat in a more healthy way, but then it also encourages the restaurants or people selling food to put healthier food on their menu. One of my favorite transparency regulations comes from, I think the first one was in LA County. I don't know if you've eaten out in Los Angeles lately. It started there. There, the government requires restaurants to put on their front door a letter grade that's A, B, or C. And the letter grade is the result of the health and safety inspection rating that they last had. So you walk by a restaurant and you can see if it's a C restaurant, the kitchen's not very clean and their hygienic practices aren't very good. But uh, you can keep walking and you walk by an A restaurant and the inspectors have determined that their health practices are really good. So that encourages people to eat in A restaurants and avoid C ones. And in turn, people who run restaurants start paying a whole lot more attention to the health and safety practices because losing a bunch of businesses for a bunch of folks is much more significant than getting slapped with a fine. Yeah, we actually have that disclosure of calories on donuts in Safeway. There's actually a big warning <laughs> sign because donuts are so high in calories. No, it's, it's really funny. I actually photographed it and put it on Facebook because it just basically said, warning, donuts are unusually high in calories and can be over like 300 calories a donut. And I looked at them and I was like, wow, that donut's so small. It really does have a lot of calories. That's a lot of calories. Um, <laughs> but it was like different to any other food. It was just like only on the donuts. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, but you explained the relationship really beautifully of the relationship of the government providing a minimal amount of legislation that then allows the consumers or citizens to then create that change. One thing that I think that disclosure does, because I, I'm really interested in studying gamification and behavioral psychology, just going back to like how much of it is just an internal pressure on the discloser, like the restaurant or the corporation, how much of it is external. I think that part of the reason why it works is that we're all fundamentally socially comparative creatures. We have this concept of social norming where we all want to be kind of in the middle or a little bit better than the middle. And nobody wants to be the worst. And I think that's really core to the human psyche for us being accepted. Uh, nobody wants to be like the bad one who's left out. So I think there's these restaurant grade cards and this toxic release inventory and all the other kind of star ratings it just has an incredibly deeply psychologically powerful effect when even if nobody ever sees the restaurant rating that you mentioned, I still think as a restaurant owner, when you get a C grade, that makes you feel bad and that influences you to change so you can be in the upper half of the pack rather than the lower half of Yeah, even if you're not afraid of losing business, you're saying you'll probably change anyway because you don't want to run a restaurant with a dirty kitchen. Yeah, I just think people just really don't want to be doing worse than everybody else. I think it's really easy to lean on market mechanisms for explanations for things, but I don't think that's the whole of what's going on with people. It's a little bit of a yeah, I agree. A colleague of mine here at the Kenny School named Todd Rogers, he's a psychologist and organizational behavior person. And, and he studies a lot of these mechanisms to try to get people to make better decisions. And so he studied things like in California, uh, in your energy bill, now a lot of people in a lot of states get a bar graph that says, here's how much energy you use in the last month and here's how much energy your neighbors use and, yeah, we, we get and them. you feel bad if you know mm. your bar is way out higher than your neighbors for the kind of reasons that you outlined and it does encourage people to save energy use less electricity yeah yeah it really does and all of the research around that is really interesting and i'm really curious to see how more of these data sets rolling out have this almost intrinsic motivation with people that is not pushed by these external forces which brings me to the nexus of behavioral economics and disclosure which you naturally moved on to if anyone's listening doesn't know what behavioral economics is behavioral sciences it's basically the behavior of how people function in terms of their purchases and in terms of their actions and it seems to me that it's an incredibly natural continuum of disclosure to then move into the behavioral sciences once you put the data out there you graphically design it so it works and then you have to get people to do the thing like not eat the donut or use less electricity have you seen these two professions starting to converge or emerge something new yeah i think this is a really interesting discussion i think that there's actually kind of a tension that you can sometimes they go together but sometimes they pull apart right and some of the design work that you're very interested in a bunch of the behavioral psychology and economics is insofar as it intersects with policy making and people trying to make the world a better place a lot of the work is in trying to design nudges cast on steam another colleague of mine wrote a famous book with with richard thaler called nudge and uh you know also for your listeners if you're interested in behavioral economics and design to affect behavior danny kahneman thinking fast and slow is another book that they might be interested in and a lot of nudges are designed to get people to do things that are good for them 
right? So you go to a cafeteria in a Harvard College dormitory, and the fruits and vegetables are in the front, but the chips are under the counter so that the kids will eat the fruits and vegetables because that's more available, right? So if you go to get a driver's license at the motor vehicles, uh, many states, the organ donation is an opt-out rather than an opt-in. So the default, if you don't do anything, you're on the organ donor registry, right? That's a nudge because society is a better place if you donate your organs, right? Because somebody else can use them. Now, transparency oftentimes operates in a much different way. Instead of nudging you, transparency, I believe, is oftentimes designed to get you to think more deeply about your choices. So Danny Kahneman, many psychologists, many people in advertising differentiate between system one thinking and system two thinking. And so when you drove to your co-working space today, you probably didn't think much about how to get there. You probably just took the route that you always do out of habit. Uh, that's system one thinking. You don't really think about how to do it. It's very efficient. When you go to the grocery store and buy breakfast cereal, I bet uh, you and me and most of the listeners out there, you do one of two things. You buy the cereal that's at eye level or you buy the cereal that you bought last time. People in grocery stores know this and they charge manufacturers more to stock the cereal at the eye level because that's a powerful nut. Whereas the whole point of putting the nutritional label on that cereal box is to try to get people to look at it and push them into what uh, psychologists have called system two, which is the part of your brain that really thinks about things and weighs the costs and benefits and decides which decision to make based on a little bit more deliberation and a little bit more thought. So probably if you bought a car, the last time you bought a car, you use system two rather than system one. Maybe you shopped around a little bit. Maybe you went for a test drive. Maybe you went to the Consumer Reports website and read a bunch of reviews. That's system two, which is totally different from buying breakfast cereal, which is system one. Hi, because I've read those books and they were actually in my list of questions to ask you. So you're ahead of me answering before yeah. I can even get to the questions, but I've never heard it explained that way in terms of nudge being system one and disclosure being system two. If that's the right way around, did I get it the right way? The right yeah, way around? I mean, I get, get a little bit mixed up myself. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so you don't you. think disclosure is a nudge? I thought disclosure was a nudge. It can be a nudge. Cass, Unseen, and Richard Thaler, in their book, they call transparency a kind of nudge. But for the reason I gave, I think it oftentimes is not really a nudge in that way, in that it's designed to engage your uh, conscious, your kind of more deliberate decision-making apparatus that's slower, that takes into account pluses and minuses rather than getting you to decide by putting you in a kind of habit groove. That's a really interesting way to explain that. But one thing that they do have in common, which is the concept that's brought up in the Nudge book of libertarian paternalism, which I had never heard of until I read that book. And disclosure sort of fits into that a bit as well, which is all about keeping the government regulations on the small side of things, which is segueing from our conversation before having a lot of people who are involved in social and environmental change being very legislation focused in their careers, their, their way of... Mm -hmm. um, operating, taking this different lens to keeping the legislation on the, the lowest possible end that we can possibly make, optimizing for human psychology, and then just letting people and organizations be free to do the right 
thing. I mean, how do you see this concept of libertarian paternalism evolving in, in this field? So I guess I think that you're right that both transparency and many, many nudges have in common the desire to lighten the regulatory hand so that government's a little less heavy-handed, at least in some of these measures, right? I think that providing information has less of a paternalistic element than nudges do, right? So the cafeteria example that I gave before, right, of putting the fruits and vegetables in the front, but kind of hiding the chips and fries a little bit so that people are more likely to buy the fruits and vegetables, that's a paternalistic move because somebody, the person, the nutritionist or the person laying out the cafeteria has decided that these students would be better off if they ate more fruits and vegetables and fewer potato chips, right? So that's a sense in which it's paternalistic. A transparency measure would be to put both the fruits and vegetables out there as well as the potato chips and then provide some information about the health effects of each one and then allow the person to decide. There are mixed cases, right? So I've seen an experiment in which they put up a sign that say, okay, if you eat this donut, you will have to run eight miles to work off <laughs> that number of calories. And that provides information, but it's, I regard that also as a little bit of a nudge, right? It's a little heavy handed, like who's gonna <laughs> think about running eight miles because they ate a donut. I'm not sure eight miles is the right figure, but you get the idea. Probably, based on the very scary sign that was I saw at Safeway, I was like, <laughs> not going not to buy these again. I still yeah. bought my daughter one anyway, but she's like only three. She can handle the calories. And she probably runs <laughs> that amount in your living room. Oh my God, she so runs I wanted to... constantly. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to bring up a possibility that your readers may not have considered so much, which oftentimes is not intuitive to either scientists or policymakers, which is that sometimes transparency and information can create harmful effects. When I was an undergrad, I was a, have a technical and scientific background, and we were uh, all, I think, to a one, partly by culture and training, very enthusiastic about people having more data and information. So let me give you a couple of examples of when information can produce behaviors that some people might regard as undesirable, which is making the world a worse place rather than a better place. And so one measure that we talk about in the book is Megan's Laws. Uh, and there probably is a Megan's Law in California. And these are laws that require people who've been convicted of sex crimes, basically. The laws vary in different states, but if you've been convicted of a sex crime, in many states you have to be in a criminal registry even after your release that reports your name and address and sometimes even your face in a public database. In the book, we come down on the side of thinking that Megan's laws are oftentimes not really a very good public policy because they provide information, but they don't really guide useful action that much and indeed may encourage harmful action like video 
vigilante law enforcement, you know, kind of people deciding on their own to, to punish these people that they see in the registry, even though these people have done their time and served their penalty to society, et cetera, right? So that kind of information may enable and unintentionally encourage a kind of behavior that's socially harmful. Well, it seems that in that example and the other examples we've been talking about is the difference between the disclosure being around a human being and around an object or a company or a particular metric like temperature or chemicals. If it doesn't seem to be around a human being, it seems to probably not cause that much of a problem. Like, for example, this lake has chemicals in it. But if you were to attach the disclosure to a human, let's say if we um, made the disclosure how much energy or water you use during a drought. And if there was one house who really didn't care about being responsible with water and using <laughs> lots and lots of water, lots and lots of water, you're right, people might come and attack the property, right? Uh, because it would be attaching it, the public disclosure to a human being. I mean, do you think that's what it is, that the difference that makes it not work? That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I think probably the risk increases when it identifies individuals as bad actors and then the rest of society can kind of pile on and sanction them or ostracize them in some way. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I guess the way I've been thinking about it is that for some kinds of disclosure and transparency, you put the information out there in order to elicit an effect. And the effect and, or behavior and therefore later on an effect. And the effect could be a good effect or it could be a bad effect depending on you know social consequences. So another example that I think part of America would regard as a good effect, another part of America might regard as a bad effect comes in immigration. So this one is not about individuals. In the initial months of the Trump administration, the Department of, I guess, Homeland Security released regular reports about which jurisdictions around the United States were not complying with their orders to hand over immigrants and cooperate with federal immigration authorities, right? So this is kind of like the toxic release inventory but it's identifying jurisdictions that the Trump administration regards as bad actors because they're not doing what the federal immigration authority wants them to do, which is turn over immigrants that have been detained and maybe deport them. And then so this is like a list of bad actors. I bet San Francisco was on that list, you know, given the state uh, and localities policies and, and general disposition with regard to federal immigration policy. I think if you're in, in many parts of California, you would regard that as a bad transparency regulation because it's designed to basically punish non-cooperative localities. If you're in a, the parts of America that support tougher immigration uh, laws and sanctions and more deportations, then you regard that as a good transparency regulation because it's cracking down on you guys who aren't cooperating with the right policy. But the core of what you're saying is the design of the transparency system needs to be designed around eliciting an action. Which I think another thing that comes up with having people who are designers, data scientists, engineers, kind of people I hang out with that I've noticed as well. So moving away, these are not the people who are too focused on policy. These are people who are very focused on data science, science, uh, is collecting a lot of information and then maybe doing a really great project or really great map and then sort of forgetting about the bit 
where it has to actually influence a person and really tacking it on at the end. I went to one workshop. It was to get feedback for a mapping project. And then they said, yeah, we've just spent basically a year and a few hundred thousand dollars working on this really beautiful project. And we're going to put a, a call to action. We haven't done it yet, but we're going to put it on at the end. And I see this happen a lot where people are very involved in a process and really kind of forget the, the final phase, which you actually have to get a human being to do a thing, yeah. which is kind of what you are also bring out and making sure that it's the right thing. It's, it's not a bad thing that you're going to accidentally get someone to do, but the thing that's going to improve everybody's lives. Yeah, I think this is a huge vulnerability on the part of engineers and kind of engineering and not design thinking, but engineering thinking in a way is that it's so easy to get the data, process the data, and generate a beautiful map. And you can do that within the skill set of a software developer, an engineer, and data scientist, right? But then there's, as you said very well, there's a whole nother step of making something good in the world happen with that data after you've caught, and that's a whole nother skill set that has oftentimes very little to do with engineering. It's about organizations, and it's about public management, or it's about activism, or it's about a whole different set of skills. So to make it work, I think you need multiple skills that marry to one another, of which being a great engineer is only a half or a third. And yeah. I think that's oftentimes missed in these kinds of efforts. Yeah, I mean, that's what I really want to see happening in the movement. I want to see all of the Silicon Valley type engineers and data scientists getting together with action designers, behavioral scientists, people who specialize in all these techniques of getting people to act with the not-for-profit people who are engaged in the causes and then coming together with these other skills. And I think that's really where the magic is or where the kind of cutting edge is of social change right now is getting all these skills together that have been very separate. Yeah, I agree. I also wanted to ask you about the difficulties in getting a good transparency legislation up and running. It seems to be that there's a whole lot of low-hanging fruit in this space that I think could be really useful. And I was talking to a gentleman a couple of weeks ago who had a senior position for an, a government energy authority in California, and his whole history had been involved in energy efficiency legislation. And I said, have you heard about this field of disclosure? What I think you should do is don't pass a law that mandates specific layers of insulation, building codes, pass a law that mandates the disclosure of the amount of kilowatt hours that each commercial building is using at any one time. So it's not a secret. They have to put it out there. And he said that actually came up a few years ago. I tried to pitch it as hard as I could because I think this is a great thing that needs to happen. At the moment, it's completely invisible what any different commercial building is doing. And he said that there was a lot of pushback. He was like, well, you'd get a lot of pushback for that. They do not want to disclose their energy consumption. Yeah. The building uh, <laughs> managers, the real estate corporations, the people who run the buildings, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, the, if, yeah. so if we could basically have the success of what we had with the toxic release inventory to commercial buildings, so groups like the Green Building Council can, you know, really get to work mapping out, looking at this at this data. I mean, how do we get past this block? That <laughs> And how has it gotten past before? And how can we pitch it in a way that's positive, that's going to get all these building people excited instead of yeah. you know, brick walls. Right. I say this with the utmost affection and respect. I think another uh, blind spot of uh, many people coming from an engineering and scientific background is that, and I myself am in this category, is that uh, it, it's a conflict-averse kind of type, and it's a, a little bit of blindness to politics and the kind of conflicts that can arise in politics. And I do think that Transparency regulations and requirements that do a substantial amount of good in the world 
always hurt someone. And those people are oftentimes likely to recognize that beforehand and resist the disclosure. Think about campaign finance disclosure, right? Requiring politicians and candidates to tell the public and everybody else who they're getting money from, right? We've got some of that, but expansions of disclosure regulation in politics have been resisted very, very strongly because both donors and politicians are hurt by the public disclosure of that information. Similarly, with the restaurant report card example that I gave, in a lot of cities, that's not really spreading because restaurant owners are organized and restaurant associations are organized to fight that kind of regulation. And similar with the building energy use disclosure that you were talking about and proposed, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all that people who run these buildings would resist that regulation. There's another really good example that wasn't in your book that I'm interested in your thoughts on, which is in Australia, we have these star ratings on appliances. Have you seen yeah. them? They're, they're like a sticker and they, they're kind of, they're quite bold. They have, I think you can get like a five star or a seven star fridge. We have them for water appliances, gas and electricity. And it's a standard disclosure model. And from what I remember, came in sort of before my time, but that's it. There was a huge amount of pushback from the appliance manufacturers, but they got it through. And then a few years later, now they all love it. And if you tried to take it away, they now see it as one of their main marketing agendas. I think the same thing happened with the catalytic converter that came in in the 50s when <laughs> cars were really polluting and they would come out saying that the enforcing the catalytic converter would just be like the death of the auto industry. And now, does any auto manufacturer want to get rid of their catalytic converters? No, right? So I'm wondering how we can pitch the disclosure legislation to inspire the potential disclosers to have the same experience of what happened with the energy star ratings to say, no, it's not going to be the end of the world. You don't need to have an epic tantrum about it. This will be a much loved uh, marketing tool on the other side. Yeah, yeah, right. So there's several ways that have worked in the past and we do see a lot of disclosure requirements and regulations out there. So it does happen. Then your question is the right one. How does it happen? I think there's several different pathways. One pathway is that disclosure regulations oftentimes happen after some disaster or crisis happens. A bunch of years ago, I think it was the late 1990s or early 2000s, there were a series of rollovers from tire defects in autos, and this became a big deal. And then one thing that grew out of that was the rollover ratings of cars now, that new cars have a rollover rating that says, okay, well, here's the percent chance that your car will roll over if you lose control. And that's a disclosure regulation that's really important. I think people pay attention to that, and cars are less likely to roll over because people have made manufacturing changes. But that was kind of made possible because people expected a response, even car manufacturers, I think, expected a response to this disaster that happened. So that's one pathway. Another pathway is to get on board some of the people that will have to disclose and they'll look good because they're actually doing pretty well, right, on the energy efficiency ratings that you were talking about, right? I think a bunch of buildings in San Francisco or in other places would actually look pretty good because they're green building. So maybe begin with a natural set of allies. Say, hey, you actually want this because once it happens, your hard work will be publicly recognized and rewarded. That's another kind of pathway to getting some allies and some friends for the disclosure regulation. Right, right. I can see that if you could privately get the data somehow and then take the best performing 50% and befriend all of them and get their buy-in, maybe like push it through to not let the laggards 
uh, in the industry cause you too much trouble? Yeah, there's a third path, which is that live in a big country. There are 50 states. States do a lot of regulation. A lot of companies that operate at the national scale, it's a nightmare for them if there are 50 different state-level versions of some disclosure regulation. They'd rather have one, obviously, that covers the whole country. So if disclosure starts popping up at the state level and it looks like different states are going to require different things, then some manufacturers, some companies begin to favor a national regulation so that at least they're all playing on one set of rules that's much, much easier to manage to. And so some of the nutritional labeling has this quality. I don't know if you've been following this, but there's been a long debate about whether to add one line to the nutritional label that says added sugar in addition to the amount of sugar that's in there. So it's really added sugar that you care about. You know, a banana has a fair amount of sugar in it, but you're not too worried about that. It's the chocolate chip cookie that has the added sugar. But it's been a big, big debate about whether to add that one line added sugar. Ah, I think we might have that in Australia. It feels familiar to me to differentiate the two. That's good. Yeah, I can see how selling the concept of simplicity over complex might be interpreted as draconian legislation would be a really good sell. I used to do LEED or Green Star, we call them in Australia, certifications on buildings. And even being a very pro-environmental person working on these buildings, often the environmental guidelines that were given to us by localities were just terrible. Like they were badly designed. We couldn't design for them. Just trying to create a design framework for architects and engineers to make an environmentally friendly building. It's just incredibly hard to do a one-size-fits-all. So you've got planners trying to basically tell you that the window needs to be this high and the eaves need to be this long and the insulation needs to be this thick and the building has to face this particular direction. It was just crazy. Even for a very pro-environmental person, it was actually technically impossible sometimes. And you could imagine for people who are not interested in the environment, I mean, they just hit the roof. I mean, that's an absolute nightmare for them to get legislation that specific in. So if all they have to do is just disclose the kilowatt hours in real time on some website and maybe some digital screen developers can figure out how to put it in there and you sell them to it that way, I mean, it seems that that would be like a relief for them. That would be, yes, please, let me just disclose the kilowatt hours and not have to have the exact width of my windows described to me, to my architects that's impossible to follow. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it, it may end up being more effective if it encourages a race to the top, which is the goal of a lot of these kind of comparative disclosure and information systems. The race to the top, it's a great way to put it. And I love the idea of leaderboards and social comparison and people trying to get up a leaderboard in their performance, getting into this, yes. this core of this social norming, social beings that we are. I wanted to ask you about the concept of environmental literacy as well. It's a phrase that's not used very often, uh, but it, it really fascinates me. Being an environmental engineer and being really obsessed with environmental data, basically it's invisible. I have no idea how much trash I make. I have no idea how much water I use, how much energy I use kind of on the electricity bill, but not in any real time, the impact on how many chemicals I use. I mean, even if I try really hard to figure it out, it's still really hard to figure out. How do you think we could increase our environmental literacy or how would that come together with the concept of disclosure and transparency to get us to be better citizens and drive change? I don't know who's working on this. So imagine if you had a... Not enough, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine you had a Fitbit 
that was your carbon footprint for the day. That would be an amazing thing. I mean, I have no idea what it would probably be impossible to do. Well, maybe not <laughs> with the amount of sensors and, and other things that are developing. But I think that kind of quantified self, but this would be more a quantified social self or a quantified environmental self would be extremely effective. I think one problem with it is that it's only people who care a lot about this sort of thing that would pay attention. It would take a while for it to diffuse more broadly as some of the health technology is only interesting to people who are already pretty healthy. So it doesn't target the people who would most benefit. But I think that those kinds of measures would be very, very effective. Or I don't know how effective they would be. Let me withdraw that a little bit. I think it's really worth investigating and developing. And so a friend of mine is involved in a company that is trying to develop uh, social, environmental, and health metrics for different products. So what if, you know, on your baby shampoo or whatever it is, you could tell very easily different health features, how they treated their workers and impact on the environment that might affect your decision-making around that, that kind of thing. The very availability of the information might increase social literacy and environmental literacy, as you're kind of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I hope to see the field evolve more. I've been working on a, a number of projects in this space at the moment, and the hardware hurdle is is real. Like, it, you have to actually build a sensor that's going to collect the information out of electronic parts and then get funding for it and then roll it out over a big industry. So there's a whole lot of potential things that could be done. Say, for example, if you were trying to measure stormwater drains in a community to figure out, you know, which drains were the worst, you would have to actually build a sensor that would sit in the drain and then then it would have to work and not break and be attached to like a, a Wi-Fi and get electricity and then send it out and you would have to have multiples of them, maybe thousands of them across the city. So a total idea could be done, but someone actually has to sit down and make it with a soldering iron and deploy it and fund it and get it to work. But I'm hoping to encourage, inspire more ideas like that through these yeah. conversations to help bring this environmental literacy out into the open and different types of startups or technology that we could build to encourage it. Yeah, maybe you've thought about this, but one thing that people have developed already, you know, Nest does this, thermostats, there's appliances that give you some kind of feedback that we didn't have just five or 10 years ago that is designed to make you a more self-conscious user of electricity or air conditioning or whatever it is. What are the next steps in, in that domain that are self-nudges in a way? I do want to be more environmentally conscious and have a smaller carbon footprint. And just like I wear a Fitbit, I believe if I had more feedback, that would help me accomplish that end. Yeah, well, I mean, there is a whole bunch of different papers that get published in the Journal of Environmental Psychology, my favorite academic paper to read. <laughs> and there's others as well. Not to say that I'm a complete comprehensive expert in it, uh, but every single indicator is different, right? So air pollution is one thing. And then air pollution is also made up of at least five, if not 10 different indicators. You know, water is different. Some of the, the other people I've been interviewing on the podcast are actually entrepreneurs who work in these companies. Aclima for air pollution, WaterSmart was the last uh, podcast we just uh, put out. Planet Labs getting satellite data and then using different image processing algorithms to actually turn a photograph from a satellite actually into data so you can see the change. And another company called SkyTruth does this with fishing boats or with mining. So you can get the satellite image of the mountaintop mine and then rather than just having 
to get human beings to look at the photos, they can actually build an algorithm that cuts up the image pixel by pixel and can tell whether it's a, you know, a tree or whether it's a coal mine and then can tell how it's growing bigger. In waste, there's a company that's putting load sensors on the arm of the truck that I did some development for. There's no one size fits all. Your environmental footprint is made up of so many different indicators from different industries, different economic drivers. So they're all very different and require a completely different startup, different group of people, different funding mechanism. To put them all together, there's not just one. One other thing I wanted to ask you, though, about the design. When I met with your colleague, Eleanor, in Boston, and she mentioned something to me that really resonated with me as a designer, which was when we're looking at how we display information to break it up into three levels of easy medium and difficult. So yeah. this is still following on from this environmental literacy debate. I think if you're really into environmental data, you're likely, or you're a designer, you're likely want to design some like crazy infographic. You see these infographics now that just have like hundreds of little graphs and little like flow charts. <laughs> and you're just like, it looks like wallpaper. I'm like, well, that makes really cool wallpaper, but it's going to take like three hours to figure out what it means. Create, you know, elaborate graphs that do really advanced things with like D3 and, and JavaScript kind of thing that's cool in, to do in San Francisco. Again, completely forgetting that it has to actually influence a human being. I mean, I fall into that category too. I tend to want to do complex things and have to pull myself back and be like, make it simple. And she said, you know, just using things like display your information in A, B or C, a star rating, just color and not lots of colors, maybe just three colors or five colors. And then if people want to know a bit more, then they can go to the yeah. next layer and they can learn a little bit more. And if they really want to learn a little bit more than that, then you can give them the full hog of all the technical data. What can we do to learn from this to help make our disclosure work into these different levels of information design? I think that's a great point. First of all, that there should be those different levels of data available at different levels of complexity. So I agree with what you said. You know, there's however many layers of complexity for users that are interested at different levels. So some people may just want a yes, no decision, a stoplight or something like that, whereas other people may really want to drill down and, and see the individual data point. That's the first point. The second point is that the right way to think about these information systems is that there's all kinds of organizations involved in producing the data and displaying the data. So one challenge I think that faces people working in government when they're putting the data out is that they feel like they are solely responsible for the soup to the nuts, generating the data, to making sure it's high quality, to putting it out there, to making sure that the display that the end user gets, that they design that properly. But I don't think that's how it works. You probably looked at the weather yesterday or today, but you probably didn't go to the website of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. You didn't go to that agency. You went to weather.com or something like that because information systems are an ecology of different kinds of organizations. And so oftentimes it's government that's producing the data, but all sorts of intermediaries that are packaging the data. It's important because those intermediaries have a lot more information about what end users are actually going to want, right? So the FAA collects on-time and delayed arrival data for every flight that's out there. So, you know, if you're flying to Boston, a United flight, you can find out the on-time percentage, but you're not going to go to FAA.gov to find that data. You're going to go to your flight tracking app or your airline website because you go to your airline website to find all the other things that you need to know to get on that airplane and fly successfully. That's the second point is that it's a 
whole ecosystem of all kinds of different organizations that are generating and packaging the information. So recognize and embrace the division of labor. Don't try to squeeze it all into one organization. That's too much and it won't work. The third point is that as a designer of either policy or information, you should have many different kinds of users in mind, right? So if you're designing a piece of environmental data, like pollution data, like toxic use that we discussed before, one kind of user is the individual, like the homeowner, the person who's thinking about buying a house in that neighborhood or whatever. Designers and policymakers have that kind of user in mind, an individual end user. But for a bunch of these information transparency systems, some of the most important users are organizations with more sophisticated analytic capacity. Think about financial regulation, you know, these 10K forms and all of the corporate data and financial data that all corporations have to report and generate. Some of the main users of that data are professional financial analysts working for pension funds or investment companies or, or whatever it is. For the whole system to work effectively, you have to provide data not just to the end user, but also really detailed, disaggregated data for professionals and organizations that are going to crank it through. Yeah, there's this technique called user story mapping or behavior mapping. It's used in software development. It's really common if you are designing in the web application design world, but it's kind of one of those things that's like nobody's ever heard of it anywhere else. But it's something that is just so critical in the process to actually just have a user figure out who they are and then map their daily life and how they will come into contact with your particular software and how they'll use it. And when you do that process, it really unveils a whole lot about the design process. Anyone listening, look up user story mapping, user behavior mapping. It's an incredibly useful tool that does not need to be trapped within the world of software development. I really like what you said about the government not needing to do it all. I mean, what can totally happen with data is that the government can be involved in or the gatherer of the data can create a database and an API and then independent developers can then build on top of that. So you don't need to just have one version of, for example, the weather or whatever environmental literacy app it is. You can have, you know, 10 different competing application developers doing different variations on whatever it is they do and then they just need to call the data from a database that has that kind of data and then you can have the creativity and the market mechanisms maybe they can host a design competition or give an award to try and encourage different players who are really experienced in the front end design calling just the database that the government is involved in funding So I think that's the way that things should move towards. I really agree. It's been one of the real revolutions in this space is probably a tiny little revolution is in the transit space. So the Muni in San Francisco or the MBTA in Boston over the last five or 10 years, many, many of these agencies now put the GPS feeds on trains and buses out available. So application developers can write apps that show you how many minutes till your bus gets to your stop. Right. And so For a long time, that innovation was really blocked for a whole bunch of kind of bureaucratic and organizational reasons. People in the transit agencies didn't want that information to really be out in the public. The GPS units were already on there, but the actual cost of making it public was quite low. But I think they were probably concerned about all of the bad things that could happen in terms of public pressure and loss of control of the information. But I think once a few transit agencies started doing it and people in the cities, I think, really, really like it. I mean, when I ride the bus, I don't care about the schedule anymore because I can see exactly how many minutes till the bus gets there. So I'll have a cup of coffee or whatever till it's time to go. 
And it's an example of what you're saying. The transit agency, all it does is flip on a switch to make the GPS locations public. And then, you know, a dozen app developers in every city can write the app to say, okay, where's my bus? It's a great example. And it's a way of thinking that really needs to spread more. And that's exactly how I got into this space because I started to design apps that I wanted to build. I wanted to design a thermometer that would go on your Facebook page and show you how much energy you're using in real time, right? Ah, that was like right. the first, my first idea. It was like five years ago. And then I realized that I couldn't get it. I started to go through all the different metrics and I'm like, I can't get any data anywhere basically there is no <laughs> there is no you know and it's just really easy as a developer you can do a request to an external database it's a simple thing to do but i think the people who are involved in in getting this data if they realize that there's this real hunger in the silicon valley startup world to do creative things like that and if they yeah. make it available there will be plenty of people like me and my friends who will want to start working on projects that use that data so i want to see that happen that's a big exciting change so it's been done in the transport industry, you said, in some cities. Let's Very hope it keeps, it, it keeps happening. If there was, a, say, a utopian world, the best possible scenario of the world in 100 years, um, where all of these issues that you study proliferated as beautifully as possible, how would it look? How would it work? <laughs> I did write a paper a few years ago called Infotopia. I think I read that, I, but I couldn't find it again. But I, so I didn't want to ask you about it because I couldn't remember it. Uh, I but it was it pretty... something about future utopian government data. Yeah, spreading. it's a little, really, it's more for an academic audience in some ways rather than a popular kind of reading audience. I think that how we should think about these things is in terms of the risks that we face and that are most important to us to live happy and fulfilling and healthy lives. And then think about, well, what are the kinds of information that we need to navigate these complex information skates? And then also, in addition to decision-making, there's an accountability dimension. What kinds of organizations are going to really help us live those healthy and fulfilling lives? Or if they act badly, create risk for us and create problems for us living healthy and fulfilling lives. And that should guide society's efforts, the public efforts, the government's efforts, corporate efforts to make information available. And so in the future world, it would be good if we had a shared sense that in order to hold companies and other actors accountable on one hand, and to make the really important decisions in our lives, we need a lot of information. And we need to demand that information from governments and from companies alike. So it comes out in easy examples, like I think food risk information. Every year there's information about contamination of some sort and a bunch of people get sick or health problems in hospitals or medical care or financial risks, right? We saw a big financial meltdown. And so there's these big actors out there who create risks for us. One way to control that risk is to have a lot more information from them about what they're doing. And in a positive future, we'd have all of that information and we'd have organizations and as individuals, we'd be literate in using that information to drive these government organizations and private corporate organizations to higher levels of behavior in a race to the top that would help us live rich, fulfilling, prosperous, and healthy lives that we want to live. The way I see this upward spiral of what you've mentioned is that once we can have better information and we can solve these difficult problems that really bring us down, we can almost move to another level of our own enlightenment or consciousness 
you know, when people are almost moving up Maslow's uh, hierarchy into the self-actualization at the top, we tend to get, I think, in social change really focused on, oh, this polar bears dying and kids are sick and we're very problem-focused orientated people. But why solve the problems? Well, we solve the problems so we can reach a new phase of our, our growth as a civilization. I mean, that's what I see as sort of like the next step, which is maybe just a fancy way of saying what you said, which is healthier and happier lives. But when you've solved all of the more significant problems in your life and in the world, that's then sort of a trampoline to jump into a, a new kind of phase of enlightenment for, for humanity. Good. Well, I, I really hope we get there sooner rather than later. <laughs> well, that's my kind of big, fancy way of thinking about it. So when you wake up in the morning, if there's one thing that gets you really excited or that keeps you awake at night in, in a positive way, like one particular angle that just really gets you about your work, how would you describe that? I think all of my work in information, but also in kind of politics and policy space, is about uh, trying to figure out ways to enable people to participate more fully and more effectively in determining their own fate. And in the transparency and information world, we've just been talking about getting people information that they need to make better decisions to determine their own fate. And in the politics and policy world, it's about creating avenues of engagement so that people can make the rules of the game and organize their lives together in ways that are empowering and fulfilling. And so that's what really drives me is trying to be attentive to the possibilities and innovations all around the world and that are open to us, but that we haven't quite grabbed onto yet, that enable people to be more empowered, both as individuals, but especially for me, socially and collectively. And so that's what really gets me up in the morning, is trying to find out what those opportunities are that we haven't quite yet seized on to and try to give voice to them and draw attention to them and create conditions in which people can really understand and explore and develop those opportunities. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to look at it, the way you've described it as seeing that there are many, many opportunities for change out there that we may have not seen. In neuroscience, they say that we only perceive a very small amount of the, of the universe or of all the information around us through our senses, that our whole consciousness actually prunes off. It's got a huge job pruning off information. So we, yeah. can, we can focus. I just thought that was a beautiful metaphor for looking for opportunities for social change. There are maybe, it's the same thing. Maybe we're getting tunnel visioned and there are actually hundreds of different other opportunities that we're not seeing. We read your book, listen to what you're doing. <laughs> then we can start to see all of these things that we maybe aren't seeing around us. Yeah, and I think if more of us try to look for those things, we'll find more of them. So Yeah, yeah what a beautiful good. sentiment to end on. Right, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Archon. It's been a wonderful conversation. I've been looking forward to it and I hope everyone listening really enjoyed the conversation too. We've talked about so many fascinating things and I would encourage you, the listener, to keep investigating your data about your course. Keep on studying the numbers. Think through the design process about how you can make these numbers available, how you can bring the numbers into government policy. You can get a copy of his book. It is called Full Disclosure on Amazon. If you look it up, it is actually wedged between two books of muscular male chests which I think is pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> some romance novels but it's not a romance novel you can get that on Amazon and if you want to support this podcast I have just launched a Patreon that you can find at patreon.com forward slash Katie Patrick if you wanted to contribute a couple of dollars to helping me have these incredible conversations and please sign up to my website katiepatrick.com for more free design resources on how you 
can get better at changing the world. If you're on YouTube, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you're listening on iTunes, you can also watch us having this conversation on the YouTube channels. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today as much as I did. Hopefully it will help turn your dreams for a better world into real and measurable change.